Thank you for being the one that died in our place, the one that was the sacrifice that was so greatly needed. Lord, without you, we have no hope of eternal life, no hope of forgiveness of sins. And so we thank you for being that sacrifice that took the cross in our place. But Father, you dying on the cross does not just provide us salvation, as great as that is. It brings us a relationship with the Father. It brings us an opportunity to be full of the Holy Spirit, to know your word, to be used by you, to have victory over sin and death and hell, that the enemy, Satan, has no power over us because of the cross. And Lord, there are so many aspects that you dying on the cross, giving your life for us and rising again, the benefits are so great. The blessings are so many to count. And so thank you, Father, for all that you have done through the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us this evening as we continue to study your word. You'd help us to know Lord, how these things apply to our daily lives, not just for head knowledge, but that our hearts and our minds would be in unison and conformity to the things of Christ. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for this morning. Uh, just an amazing time in your word with, with your people. And we just thank you for our church family, a time that we can gather together to worship you, to grow in the knowledge of grace and truth, that we might be changed into the image of Christ again for your glory and our blessing. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I do want to just share a couple announcements quickly. Um, not very many, but just so you know, we do have our ladies event coming up uh, August 5th. Uh, that's going to be going on. And so that's going on again, August 5th from 11 to 2. Uh, craft day for the ladies. Uh, a lot of different craft opportunities there. Uh, there's different costs for those. So if you would like to be a part of some of that or just come for fellowship, just come for lunch and, and whatever, that's fine. Whatever part of it you want to be a part of, uh, definitely want to open up that you can be a part of that. Um, you can sign up at the Welcome Center there. And then we do encourage you to pay in advance if possible. Um, if you have any questions, you can see Kelsey tonight. Probably would be the best one to talk to. Um, also, I want to let you know if it's Sunday Praise, next Sunday, uh, be inviting people out to this. It's a great time to just celebrate uh, Christ and all that he is, all that he has done for us. We want to just worship him, share a time of testimonies and praise and all of that. So encourage people to come on out. Uh, if you know someone you want to invite, let them know you want them to be here. Uh, encourage you to do that. And then also we have our family day at the park, uh, August 19th. Sign up is at the Welcome Center if you want to bring a dish to pass. And again, we're really excited about this. I've already heard a few people say they're going to invite uh, some couples that don't attend our church to be a part of that with their kids and whatnot. So that's always exciting to hear that. Um, also want to let you know we do have, and it was just posted today um, on Facebook, we have our Word of Life registration. Uh, we'll be starting up um, beginning of August. Yep, August 6th, and it usually runs for a few weeks there. So all the information will be coming in the bulletin soon, um, online soon. So if you have children or grandchildren, you want to get registered for Word of Life, that all that information will be coming very, very shortly. Uh, hard to believe that we're already at that point, uh, but here we are, and we're excited for another great Word of Life year. Uh, really believe God is going to do something great this year in Word of Life. Um, he's been so, uh, or he has been blessing us so much in our children's ministry as a whole. Um, it was so cool. Uh, Sandra's been going through uh, pictures on her um, phone and, and computer and stuff, just pictures over the years. And obviously it's mostly either kids from school in Emily City or it's kids at church. That's usually the two, the two groupings on the pictures. It's either kids from her preschool class or kids at our church here. So um, there's some family on there too, I should say that. That's probably fair to say. But I think the other children wipe out like the number of pictures of our own kids. I definitely think that's true. Um, and I'm sure Danielle can relate with that. I'm sure TJ and her have tons of pictures on their devices of kids from the preschool class. Yep, she's not in her head. Yep. So, um, but saying that, we were going, she was trying to show me some of the pictures, even just from a few years ago. And uh, Summer Blast is our Wednesday night ministry that we do. And um, I want to say, was it 2018, 2019, somewhere in there? Um, 10 kids, right, on Summer Blast. There was 10 kids on a Wednesday night Summer Blast because um, she took a kind of a group picture of them. And so that, and I remember that was like, we were excited for that at that summer. Um, we actually, this last Wednesday night had 43 uh, in uh, Summer Blast. And so, and we were missing some. So God is just so good how he's blessed, even in just a few years. We're talking, that was, 
four or five years ago. So God is so good to be blessing that way. Um, and we're excited for what the school year has ahead of us. And so be praying now for Word of Life. Pray for the teachers, the volunteers. Um, we did have some of our volunteers from last year. They did like a one-year trial kind of a thing just to see if it was for them. Realized at the end of the school year, this really isn't probably a great fit for, for me. And so uh, we had about, I think, three three volunteers for sure stepped down that were doing things last year. Um, and so we were starting to pray about, okay, Lord, you know, we need more small group leaders and we need people to step in because during the school year, we would have over 50 kids on a Wednesday night, just a normal Wednesday night. And so um, actually this morning, what a praise, uh, somebody approached Sandra and said that they would be interested in possibly checking out Wednesday night and getting a feel for what Word of Life might be like. They want to maybe be involved in Word of Life. And uh, this person's been a teacher before and all of that. So um, just so exciting to see how God starts bringing people. Um, sometimes you can get discouraged and think, oh man, we always need volunteers and there's never enough volunteers. Where are they? And then usually right about that time, someone just shows up and goes, hey, I kind of feel like the Lord wants me to serve in this ministry. So God is doing great things. He's laying it on people's hearts. But I want to encourage you as we pray for Word of Life, be praying for volunteers, helpers, workers. Um, it's always good to have those people in the room. And so be praying for that. All right. That's all the big announcements I have for this evening. Um, any questions about any upcoming events or announcements? No. All right. Well, we'll dive into our handout from last week. So, um, Psalm 19 is the handout we gave you guys last week. So hopefully you guys have that with you. If you were here, if you were not here, I do have extras. So I can give you those in just a second. And then we do have clipboards and pens up here. So if you need a clipboard or a pen, you're welcome to come grab one. So who needs one for last week? Okay. What's that? Uh, let me make sure I got enough and then I'll help you out. And there you go. There you go. Three, four. There you go. Anyone else? Kelly, did you need one? Anyone else need a handout? No, thank you. It was very polite of you, Evan, to ask if I needed a pen. It's very polite. I think we're good. All right. All right. So, Psalm 19. Um, we started last week. And so, um, I grabbed this for Wednesday. I don't know why I put it up here, though. I don't use it. I'm, I'm forgetting what day of the week it is. Um, so, Psalm 19, we started this last week. We got through the first six verses, so we still have a few verses to go. And so what I'd like to do is, again, I know we've got some that were here last week that you've already taken 10 minutes or so and kind of worked through the psalm. Um, but I'd like to give some time to those that weren't able to be with us last week to have some time to work through the psalm. So uh, we're going to go ahead and give you a little bit. Um, we might only do more like eight minutes, something like that maybe, um, just to kind of give those people time to do that. So what I want to do is give you guys an opportunity to spend just a few moments reading over the text. Um, what you want to do is note different things you see in the text. Um, again, quick review. What is, what is very important when we're interpreting a psalm? Okay. Yeah, exactly. How do we feel? Because that really dictates the word of God. My emotions. I feel good. It's a good day. Now, how do, <laughs> that was hilarious. I was like, did Avi just say that? That's what threw me off. I was like, wait, what? You got me. Okay. Yeah, I was like, okay. It was not what I was expecting. Um, but what is something that is important when we go to a psalm? What, what should we always be remembering when we're interpreting a psalm? What type of literature is it? It's poetry, right? Remember, the Word of God is made up of various types of literature. There's story, there's law or precepts, there's poetry, there's historical narrative. Uh, so there's lots of prophecies, so lots of different types of literature. So when you go to the Word of God, and we want to interpret it literally, right? Our goal is literal interpretation. I know that's becoming less and less popular in even churches today, but our goal is literal interpretation. But when we go literally to interpret the scripture, we have to keep it in the context of the type of literature it is. So if we see poetry, we interpret it literally 
as poetry. So we want to be careful because sometimes in the Psalms, there's a lot of emotion being expressed, highs and lows. Um, sometimes there's figurative language that's being used. We want to keep it in that context. And so as you're reading through here, those that weren't with us last week, we already addressed this. So you'll note this in the first couple of verses. It talks about day, speaking days, having a language. What we know a day, like Monday doesn't have a language, right? We think it does because we think Monday communicates a lot of things to us, but it doesn't. It doesn't actually have a language. So what is it saying there? It's talking about creation. Creation is speaking. There's something in creation that's evident or obvious. So as you're going through here, you're going to see some of that. So I'm going to give you guys about eight minutes or so to go ahead and make some notes, highlight some things, read through the text. If you see some divisions or how the psalm might be broken up, that's one thing that you might want to spend some time doing. But just take about eight minutes or so, read through there, and then we'll come back and talk about it in just a minute.
So <clears throat> we're going to have you guys, if you would, just kind of pause that thought for just a second. We're going to kind of review a little bit uh, the first six verses, and then we'll kind of jump into some new stuff. So first six verses we talked about last week, and if you want to put a kind of a divider out there to the left-hand side, uh, verses 1 through 6 would kind of be one section, 7 through 11 would be another section of the psalm, and then 12 through 14 would be the third section. So that's kind of how we broke the psalm up. Of the first six verses, we talked about that they revealed to us that um, God's majesty and glory on display all around us, and this is evident in creation. So God's majesty and God's glory are evident and on display all around us, and creation is the example that David uses here in the beginning of the psalm. He speaks about creation revealing his majesty. And so we talked about all this last week, but we also want to note that we talked about the fact that this involves the idea of natural revelation, which means that in creation we can see and understand that there is a God. Uh, and a reference you could jot down there somewhere off to the side would be Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, that speaks to this idea that, that we have no excuse, that we know there is a God. Uh, Romans 2, 1 also speaks to this idea. And so man is without an excuse because the knowledge of God is revealed in creation and in our conscience. So we said our conscience has been corrupted by sin, but God has still created us in his image. And in us, there is a conscience that God has given to us. And it's corrupted in the sense that we will not naturally seek after God. But when we see creation, we know there's something. Now, sin is corrupted. We don't fully understand. We don't even really want to acknowledge that it's the true God because we don't want to submit to his authority and so on and so forth. But we know when we stand before God one day, we know from creation and our conscience that there is a God. And that God is an authority over our lives. So we saw that in the first six verses. All of that language about the idea of day says unto day. Um, verse 3, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Again, their voice, a day does not have a voice. Like literally there's no voice there. What is it saying? That the evidence of creation speaks to all mankind. That all of humanity understands the language of creation. That we can all see in creation there is a God. And that God is an authority over us. Because as we said last week, we didn't create it. So at the least we know that there's something out there that created all this and it wasn't me. So that something must be greater than I am. Or that we are collectively. And again, sin will corrupt that and mis mislead us and push it down and not want to acknowledge it. But when we're confronted with the gospel and we see the gospel, we now in creation have evidence, in our own conscience have, have an evidence of that, a calling to that. The gospel is now presented to us by the work of the Holy Spirit, and now we have a choice to make. Am I going to believe and receive or reject? And this is why Paul says, when you stand before God, whether you heard or didn't hear, you are without an excuse. Because creation alone and the fact that God created you speaks to this truth. And so we covered that last week. Verses 7 through 11. Um, I am going to ask somebody to read that for us because, again, we're going to kind of refresh our minds on this. Um, but 7 through 11, if I can get a volunteer who would like to read that for us. Sandra, awesome. Thank you. Okay, so in the first six verses, what did David kind of emphasize? What was he using as an example of God's majesty and glory being on display? Creation. Now he moves to, from creation, he moves into the law. So not only does creation reveal his majesty, the law reveals his glory. So when I was kind of putting, that's kind of what I titled 7 through 11. The law reveals his glory. So as well as nature, God can be seen in the inspired word that he gives mankind. So in the word, we see evidence of God and Christ. And this is called special revelation. 
So natural revelation is just that. It's natural. It's evident around us. Special revelation is a revealing of God's character, nature, attributes, plan, purpose, gospel, all those things that he gives to us through human authors. That he inspired human individuals to write these words down. Some of them were prophesied and then written down. Some were given just to be written down as a letter. Then it got prof- or kind of got communicated through that. But however you want to look at it, that special revelation di- displays the glory of God. Now, you note there in verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Some people would say, well, wait a minute. We can't be saved by the following of the law, Right? Like, can I keep the law perfectly and then at the end of my life from keeping the law perfectly be saved? No. So what in the world is David referring to here? Well, first of all, what is the law of the Lord in specific context? What, what actual books of the Bible is David talking about? Right. The first five books of, of the uh, Old Testament, the books of Moses. So when he says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul... What I tend to think he means here, and many others as well, it's not that he's saying, okay, if I follow the law, my soul is saved or rescued. But in the law, I see what? My weakness, my sin, and the need for forgiveness. So through that, I now understand I need to be forgiven for my sin. And the law reveals that sin to me. David or Paul makes a similar argument in Romans. That I didn't know sin but by the law. And the law made it known to me that I was a sinner. And so here we see that same example of what David's saying. The law, he never used the law as a means unto salvation. Tell the rich young ruler when he came and said, how can I inherit eternal life? What did Jesus say? The first thing he says is, what does the law say? Right? Yeah, what, what does the law say? What are the commandments? And he names commandments. Specifically the ones human to human. And the man says what? What was his response to Jesus? I've done all those things. Not only have I done them, one that I have have done them since my youth. Jesus then says, one thing you lack. Really, it's more than one. But he says, one thing you lack. Which reminds us of Revelation 2 and 3 in the letters to the seven churches. He says, one thing you lack. So everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. Which was really a restating of what commandment. You're not supposed to have any other gods before me. And so Jesus used the law, not so that the man would be saved. What was the purpose of the law in that conversation? Right, to show him his need, he's not as perfect as he thinks he is. How else would we describe that process of showing someone their need? You're not perfect and you need forgiveness. It's humbling them. It's breaking the prideful heart, Right. That man walked up to Jesus, I think, believing fully. Jesus would say, you don't need to do anything. You're in. That's why I think he asked the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He was expecting Jesus to say, nothing. You're good. That's not what he said. Because he came in pride. And so Jesus used the law to break a prideful heart, to humble him, so that he might, what? Receive grace. But notice, he doesn't do that with Nicodemus in John 3. When Nicodemus comes at night, Jesus doesn't even refer to the law in the sense of trying to break his heart. Why? I believe Nicodemus was already humbled. He already knew the law. He knew what the law stated. He knew what he needed to do. Now, some disagree on this. Some people think Nicodemus didn't come to Christ to much later, so on and so forth. I, I believe, and the conversation ends, so we don't definitively know. I think that conversation ended and Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus. That's just my opinion. I think it's evidenced when we see him later standing up for Jesus and then ultimately giving a very large sacrifice at the, at the tomb, representing that of a love of a friend or a family member. And he does all of that publicly, by the way. He doesn't hide that. I don't think Nicodemus came at night because he was scared of the Pharisees. I think he came at night because he wanted one-on-one time with Jesus. And by the way, when you're followed by thousands of people from sun up to sundown and you want a conversation with them, you're going to go at night when there's not as many people around. So here, again, Jesus used the law in the lawful way. The same way, by the way, we can use the law today. We can show people their need for forgiveness of sin by confronting them with their sin, which means pointing them to the law. Because the law is perfect. It's complete. It's mature. It's all we need to show us our need of a Savior. That was David's point. But greater in application, more than the first five books of the Old Testament, what do we know about all Scripture? All Scripture is inspired. You can jot it down, 2 Timothy 3.16. 
Again, David is speaking to the law, specifically the first five books of the Bible. However, we know being New Testament believers looking backwards, we have 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God's revelation in scripture is perfect, trustworthy, right, pure, clean, and true. That's what the word of God is. It's all of those things and so much more. It's perfect. There's no errors. There's no faults. It's right and pure and clean and true. It revives the soul. And I love what one author says. It revives the soul, brings wisdom, creates joy in the heart, and gives enlightenment and endures forever. Now, I know I said that really fast. If you wanted to write it down, I'll give you my notes after. But I love that, that quote from an author that I was studying. It revives the soul, brings wisdom... Praise God, it brings wisdom to us that we don't have. You ever been amazed by this? What does James say? If anyone lacks wisdom, James 1.5, I believe. If any lacks wisdom, what are we supposed to do? Ask who? God. Ask God, and he will give us that, right? And he won't hold back from us or make us feel guilty for not asking before. That's what it means when he says he abradeth not. When it says that he abradeth not, that means that when we go to him and we ask for wisdom, and we should have asked three days ago before we made the, conver- the decision, before we did the thing, and then we realized it wasn't the right thing, then we go and go, oh, God, could you give me wisdom on how to deal with that? Humanity would say, well, you bonehead, you should have asked me three days ago. But God doesn't do that. God says, no, here, I'll give you wisdom. And I, I meet so many people that say, yeah, I pray for wisdom. I pray for God to give me wisdom. I pray for God to give me enlightenment. And then they completely reject or deny the means by which God gives us his wisdom. How does God give us wisdom? Through his word. Now, we can say, well, can't God just give me wisdom like kind of supernaturally? And, and sometimes God may lead you in a Holy Spirit moment where you have a leading to make one decision or another that's more wise than the other. Sure, that can happen. But I don't think we should bank on that being the normal way that God leads us. God's normal way that he gives us wisdom according to his word is in the word. So how many times have you prayed for wisdom, but then denied spending time in the word of God and then wondered why you didn't have the wisdom to do what you felt you needed to do? So David is saying, no, the word is profitable. Paul agrees. The word is profitable. It brings wisdom. It creates joy in the hearts. It brings joy into our heart. It gives enlightenment into a situation. We have an understanding that's brought to us from the word and it endures forever. Wasn't that what Jesus said? My word will endure forever. Nothing will stop his word. So because it is so powerful to bring about such works in the hearts and minds of mankind, it is a treasure. And what should we desire with that treasure? We should desire it more than anything else. That's what David's saying. He says here that it's the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's what we need. Wise, spiritually, the simple, our natural state. Again, 1 Corinthians speaks to this idea. Then he goes on talking about rejoicing in the heart. It brings joy. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So because all of that's true, because 7 through 9 is true, verse 10 makes perfect sense. More to be desired than they are, are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. So not just gold, which may be having impurities or things like that. No, the finest gold you can imagine. The most purest gold, the most valuable gold. The word of God and the knowledge and the joy and the enlightenment and all that it brings, it's worth so much more. And why is that true? That sounds good. And it's a comparison that David is making here. But why is it true that the things the word provides to us and what the word is, why is that so much greater than even the finest gold that we can come across in this life? Right. Right. Yep. And eternity is for eternity. Mm-hmm. And there's 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the word reveals to us the way of salvation, which is Christ, and that is of eternal weight. And without that, I have no hope when I stand before him. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on that? Why the word and what the word brings into our life are, is worth so much more than even the finest gold or the greatest wealth in this world? Because it is true. When we stand before God one day and we're in Christ, which was revealed to us from the word, we have that hope in Christ. But what else might be a benefit from that or a greater value. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Avi. Yeah, and the other thing that I was thinking as well, like, which is still like immeasurably more worth more than gold, is that this is God's love letter to us. Mm -hmm. Like, this is how He reveals who He is as a person, a living being who loves us and wants that relationship with us. Mm -hmm. So we get to know Him and see Him through His Word and just have that relationship, which is more valuable than all the money in the world. Mm -hmm. Yes. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah. So we are benefited. We are blessed, but we also get to bless others by providing that knowledge to them that they come into relationship with Christ and are benefited and blessed by that. And then also all the benefits that we receive here, it brings that relationship that this side of heaven relationship. We know we'll have one that side of heaven, but this side of a relationship to have that ongoing intimacy with, with the Lord. And it's been kind of cool. I, I was reading, I just started reading a book a few days ago by Charles Stanley, um, in step with God, I think is the title if I'm remembering right, but all about developing that intimacy with God to, to have that close friendship with God. Absolutely. Which comes from the word primarily, right? Experiences happen at times. We have those moments of prayer and answered prayer and conversations, but the word is the foundation of that, right? Can our gold be taken away this side of heaven? Right. So we might chase it, pursue it, amass it, have it, and then lose it just that quickly. The things the word does for us in our hearts and minds can never be taken away. Can never be taken away. What, is, what does the word say? Store up for yourselves what? Treasures where, you know, thieves can't break in and steal. There's no rust. There's no moths. There can't be moth eaten. It's eternal value. So it's greater to pursue that than to pursue things that we will ultimately or could ultimately lose in this life. And so again, I love David's wording here. It's greater than gold, yea, uh, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey on the honeycomb. So it's sweet to our souls. Now, what is this verse, verse 10, what does this make you think of? Another book of the Bible. What does that, that verse 10 make you think of? What does it sound like? It has a poetic na narrative to it, but... Okay. Yep. I didn't think about that, but that's good. The description of the uh, land flowing with milk and honey, right? All your deepest needs are met. Doesn't verse 10 kind of sound like the book of Proverbs? I mean, how often does Proverbs talk about pursuing wisdom, pursuing a relationship with God, having it more valuable, more treasured than honey off the honeycomb or sweetness from someone else? Like it's that kind of proverb way of thinking, right? Which shouldn't surprise us because when Solomon wrote Proverbs, which are just wisdom statements, more or less, right? Practical wisdom statements. How do we take the law of God and apply it to our daily lives? Here's a whole book of examples is really what Proverbs is. Here's how the Israelites take the law and apply it daily, whether it be interpersonal relationships, government, whatever it might be. And so David, with the same spirit, right? The same wisdom and knowledge is writing in a similar tone. So again, we see this kind of all coming together. Um, the result of pursuing and consuming his word is that God's servant finds warning and great reward in his written revelation. That's what the last verse in our section speaks to. That when we pursue the word of God, we're seeking out the word of God. Again, David, the law for us, the completed word of God, as we're seeking that word out, the result is we'll be both warned and rewarded 
as we continue to walk with Christ. That we have an idea of understanding that the word reveals areas we must repent and change. Right? You've read a verse, you've read a passage where you know it was telling you, you need to do this differently. You need to think differently. You need to handle that relationship differently. You need to pray differently. Right? You need to make some sacrifices or you need to do this or that. We all have those moments where we repent and we change. We turn back. But also there's times when we understand there's great reward in his written revelation. So those who are running the race for Christ, those who are pursuing him and doing things that he calls them to do, you'll find great reward and treasure in God's economy. Not that we're doing it for that, that we'll be, quote, rewarded, but sometimes the reward isn't physical. It's not a material reward. It's that peace of the spirit that we know, even though everyone else goes, you're crazy for doing that. I can't believe you would give that up or do this or go serve there. Or why do you go to church so much? There's going to be so many other things. That's crazy. But the peace and the joy and the, the feeling of God being pleased with us is those treasures, right? That we get from where? The word of God. So lastly, verses 11 through 14. So God's majesty is in creation and his glory revealed in the word. So God's majesty is in creation and his glory is also revealed in the word, which leads to how David ends this psalm. And I love these last three verses. So cool. David here actually prays that he would reflect God's glory. So creation shows the majesty of God, right? It's evident all around us. The law or the word reveals his glory. And so when David looks at creation and see God's handiwork on display, he looks into the word and he reads of the glory of God and the majesty of God and the wonder of God. It brings us to a natural conclusion. Okay, Lord, if it's in creation this way, it's in the word this way, let it be in my life this way. Let my life be a reflection of your glory. So 11 through 14, maybe one more volunteer that would like to read that for us. Danielle, awesome. Thank you, ma'am. So here we see that David kind of takes everything he's talked about and he makes it what? Very personal. He's applying it to his life. And this is amazing because so many Christians sit in churches week in and week out, service after service, and they hear the word of God preached. They agree with what's being preached, but that final step of application is sometimes lacking. We'll say things like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I do look and I see God in creation. Yeah, that's right. I love reading his word where it reveals the glory of God and the majesty of God. But we don't take that next step to say, now, Lord, thank you for convicting me that my life needs to reflect your glory and your majesty. But David does that and he prays a prayer and he gets very personal with God. So what does he basically pray? He prays for the forgiveness of sins. It's really what he's doing. He kind of closes it out. Under all of that he's seen, he's convicted of his own sin. And he says, I need to make this right with the Lord. David gets open and transparent before the Lord and reveals to us different types or forms of sin. So we see different types and forms of sin. So hopefully you did this in your handout. And so I'm going to encourage you to underline these examples. So what's the first thing we see? The word errors. So circle, underline errors in verse 12. Then we have secret faults at the end of verse 12. Verse 13, what's the next kind of sin that we see? Presumptuous sins, so circle or underline that. And then he ends verse 13 with another type of sin. He calls the great transgression or the word transgression, however you want to underline that. So here we see David kind of, and we're going to walk this out a little bit, gave us some progression in this understanding of sin. So the first word, now I'm going to tell you what most scholars in my studies, what they believe these things are referring to. So you can make some notes off to the side. Again, if you want my notes, uh, you're more than welcome to have a copy. Uh, so the first one is the word errors, errors. So when we think about that, what, what comes to your mind when you think of someone saying, using the word error to define a sin or to talk about sin? What type, not specific sins, but what type of kind of a sin would you think that would kind of qualify for? 
when you read through the progression that he talks about. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. What's in? Okay. Yep. We're kind of, and it kind of goes with that last phrase, secret faults. Okay. It's actually, any other thoughts on that real quick before we go? What comes to your mind? Think of errors. <laughs> oh, okay. 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 It's a good point. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting. I always like asking questions like that because I find it interesting to hear the kind of different takes on it. When I first read this and my not, my first instinct was to think I, I could put the word mistakes there. I got the impression and it's interesting to hear how you guys said it too. And I'll tell you kind of what the scholarly minds think in a moment. But when I first read it, I just thought, oh, this sounds like a small thing. Like maybe those little tiny little sins, like not the big deals because he ends with the great transgression. So in my mind, I went, oh, so from the littlest kind of sin to the greatest kind of sin. And so when I was studying through here, it's interesting to hear the different conversations. We have to take that first part of the verse into consideration. Who can understand his errors? So how do we understand our errors? Knowing what's right. Okay. Okay, which leads us to reading the word, right? Because remember he said, how do I have enlightenment from the word? How do I have an understanding from the word? So he's making a point. I can't even know that there's sin in my life that needs to be confessed without the word revealing it to me. And again, we're going right back to what Paul talked about in Romans. So many people would say these errors are sins that are, that are committed and we would not have been aware of them if it wasn't for the revealing and convicting nature of the word of God. So these are errors. These are sins that we would commit that to us, either not a big deal, we wouldn't really think about, we're not really concerned about. But then when we read the word and the spirit of God begins to convict us, we go, oh, that is a sin. So it's not so much a sin of, oh, I didn't know it was a sin. It is a sin. And I knew it was a sin in a sense but I didn't realize God saw it as a sin. I didn't realize it was that big of a deal. But as the word begins to convict us and the spirit begins to convict us, we now realize, oh, I look at my life and there's some things that need to change. I think of this as kind of the first step in the Christian walk. When we first get saved and we receive Christ, there are things that we do or have done that we didn't really think were that big of a deal. I mean, I'm not killing anyone. I'm not out here doing this or cheating someone or whatever. I'm, it's not that big of a deal. But then what happens is we're walking with Christ. What does the spirit begin to do? Now, thankfully, the spirit doesn't hit us with everything because we would have quit. <laughs> nope, I'm done. I can't change everything about me right now. The spirit reveals to us this or that thing. Well, this needs to change. That needs to change. This is a sin. So I love that David starts here. Okay, these are sins that we commit that the word reveals to us so that we might change and be conformed away from those things to the image of Christ. And this is all done by the spirit, which leads to the next, next type of sin, which you guys were kind of alluding to a little bit, the secret faults. So these secret faults are just that. Things that we do that we do not know are sinful or committed in ignorance. So the errors, as I'm a Christian reading the word, I'm beginning to learn what sin is. So now I'm being convicted. Whether I keep doing that sin or not, it's up to me. These secret faults, these are things that I had no idea, even in the word, studying the word, reading the word, I had no idea that was sinful. They're secret faults, secret from me, not from God. They're faults that I commit that I didn't know were sinful. Uh, they were committed in ignorance, Okay. The Old Testament law, and I'll give you a couple references you can jot down off to the side or on the bottom. The Old Testament law provided forgiveness for sins committed in ignorance. Still, 
Leviticus 5.17. Now again, remember, we're under grace. We're not under the law. But David is referring to the law. So we've got to keep it in context. And this is why David's referring to secret sins or secret faults. Leviticus 5.17 makes it clear that whoever commits a sin unknowingly is nevertheless still guilty of that sin. So you may not know it's a sin, but if you did it, you're still guilty for it. Okay? Basically, ignorance is no excuse. Numbers 15.22-29, I'll give you that reference as well. Numbers 15.22-29 actually speak about unintentional sins or sins I didn't know were sins, and explain the procedure for forgiveness. So there is a way... I'm sorry, go ahead, Sandra. Numbers 15, 22 through 29. I'm sorry, I might have misspoke. So here we see David's referring to something in the law, and he's saying, listen, for those sins, I'm recognizing the errors that you reveal to me that need to be changed and made right, but also for the secret sins that I didn't even know of. And this is why one of my all-time favorite Psalms is Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. David cried this in that psalm. Search me and try me to see if there be any wicked way in me. David's heart was, Lord, I need you to search me because I'm reading your word and I'm not seeing it. I'm, I'm trying and I'm not seeing it. So if there is anything in me, and what a, I mean, that's kind of a scary thing to pray. Because by the way, what if he says, okay, I'll do that. And this has got to change. And that's got to go. And this has got to change. So again, David was transparent with the Lord. So we see secret faults. We see errors. The next one, verse 12, presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins. This is exactly what it sounds like. These are willful sins committed with eyes wide open. Willful sins committed with eyes wide open. These could be arrogant actions that invite harsh consequences. I just don't care. I'm going to do it. I know it's not right. I know it's sin, but I'm doing it anyway. It's willful sin or willful disobedience. Okay, we make the choice beforehand. I know it's a sin. I'm not unsure about it. I don't have to study the word about it. I know, but I do it anyway. So David is saying, so look what he says. Who can understand his errors, personal faults or sins? Only through the word of God can we know that. Cleanse thou me from secret faults, so those things I don't know. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. So keep me back from willful sinning, is what David's crying out. And it's this process of wanting to be in the right frame of mind. And then the last thing he says is the great transgression. So in the original Hebrew, like many other times in scripture, uh, the word the right there is not in the original language. So this would not say the great translation or transgression in the original Hebrew. It would just say great transgression. Uh, most likely, David does not have one specific sin in mind. So some think he has no specific sin in mind. It's just this great transgression. Others have suggested perhaps David meant the sin of idolatry. That the great transgression is a sin of idolatry. Which if we study the Old Testament, that's a pretty good educated assumption or guess because what does God hate the most idolatry thou shalt have no other gods before me and everything else in the 10 commandments is based on that verse or that commandment so did you say idolatry or idolatry? idolatry idolatry so some people say he was just referring to a great sin not one specific sin, but a great skin, sin. Others have suggested, and I tend to think more this way, it was actually the sin of idolatry. Now, we need to note something here. Look at the structure. So he's in the word, right? Verse 12, which reveals sin that he needs to confess. He's open enough to say the secret faults, the things I don't even know, take care of those. If that's taking place, I'm in the word and I'm openly repenting and, and sharing with the Lord. and I'm in this relationship. Verse 13 that will keep back, if you want to look at it this way, the servant from presumptuous sin or willful sin. And then he goes on to say, let them not have dominion over me, who's the them, presumptuous sins. Then shall I be upright, which means walking in the right way, not kind of sitting in the seat of the scornful or the wicked. And I shall be innocent from the great transgression. So how did David decide or discover, by the way, through the word, how to avoid idolatry? 
How did he avoid ending at the sin of idolatry? Well, it starts way back there, being in the word, confessing the sins, following the word of God, being open and transparent. And if we're in that relationship with God, we'll never end in the sin of idolatry. But David doesn't stop there. We could stop there and go, okay, David's, he's good. He's in a good place. But I love that he says, okay, it goes from errors that I know are errors I should confess, secret faults, I don't really care about those. I'll just commit willful sin and that will lead to idolatry. He inversed that and said, no, I need to make it right in the very beginning. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 14. He also asked God to accept his speech and the meditation of his heart. And this verse is so powerful. I encourage you, if you're looking for a verse to memorize, and I know sometimes as we get older, people say, well, I, I just can't memorize verses anymore. That's, that's a lie. You can memorize the word of God because the spirit of God will help you. I understand it's difficult. It takes more work, but you can do it if you put the work in, right? And again, if we really prioritize something, we'll put the work in. When we don't put the work in, we're telling God, I really don't prioritize your word or the memorization of your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. What's that word meditation referring to? Motives. The motivations of my heart be acceptable, not in anyone else's sight, but in your sight. Oh Lord. And why does he want this? Why is he crying out for this? Why does he want to be forgiven of these sins and kept in a right upright standing with God? Because he's his strength and his redeemer. And so David doesn't just stop at make me um, or help me to not sin and to be right with you that way. He goes a step farther and says, be with my speech and my motives. So David not only wants to obey God, but he also seeks to please him in his words and thoughts. So he doesn't just want to obey God's law, which is good enough. No, I want to please you in obedience. This is what we see in the words of Christ, speaking to our words and our actions coming from a pure heart. Or the Apostle Paul speaking to our words, giving grace and being edifying. Or James talking about fresh and bitter water coming out of the same fountain not being possible. This principle of our words and motives reflecting our walk with the Lord is not new. What David is crying out for here is the same thing reaffirmed in the New Testament. That the fruit of our heart will be evidenced in our desires and our words. And if he's crying out, keep my heart upright, keep my life upright, that will result in right words and right motivations. So David addresses God as Lord, rock, and redeemer. Very important to note those three things. Lord, rock, or strength, and redeemer. These things he has personally found God to be in his own life. Not only from the word, and studying the word, but personally. He recognized that the Lord was the provider of his security and his salvation. Verse 14 is an incredible prayer that I believe we all could pray as well as put to memory. The final verse has served as a model not only for prayer, but also for songs of praise and worship for much of Christian history. And again, it's a model for us in worship today. If we really want to worship in spirit and in truth, verse 14 is a great way to put that in a summary for our own personal daily prayer life. And so my challenge to you is, tomorrow morning when you wake up, pray verse 14. Lord, today, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I promise you, if you will start your day with that mindset, God will give you opportunities to do that. Now, there's going to be times where we don't really want to follow that because we want to say or think or do something different. And I was kind of telling somebody already this evening, and I told Sandra the other day, uh, starting a, a devotional on gratitude on Friday morning. Gratitude, being thankful. What a great thing to study. And I'm telling you, it's amazing how when you start putting yourself to something, how your flesh and Satan and circumstances will push everything else on you. And Friday and Saturday... Two different things came up in both days that really pushed me to not really want to be thankful and grateful. And I'm not kidding. It was like as soon as I finished the devotion, we went about our day and something happened. And I was like, are you serious, Lord? Like this, really? And it wasn't even that big of a deal. Like to anyone else, they'd be like, okay, so what? But in that day, it just frustrated me. And it was like the Spirit was like, so when you prayed earlier, help me to be grateful. Did you really mean that? And then Saturday, something happened. And it's like, okay. Lord, I know I need to be grateful, and so I'm, I'm sorry. Help me to be thankful for this. And so it's amazing how when we start putting ourselves to these things, how our flesh and the world and our enemy Satan will start kind of 
coming against us in these things. So I, I, I give you that as a warning. If you really start praying Psalm 1914 over your life every single day, you will have great opportunities to live that out. But you will also have opposition to that. And I'm, I, but I promise you, it is worth it in the end. Avi. Right, oh yeah, no, yeah. He was giving me practical opportunities to apply it. Yeah. Right, right. And I wish I could say, right, I wish I could say that I responded right away the best way. It's not true. I, I didn't initially respond the right way. Um, and so, again, I'm so thankful for his grace that keeps working on us, that even though I knew what I should have done and how I should have responded, it took a little bit of time to get there. But I'm so thankful that he, he works in all of that, absolutely. Growing us even through the difficult situations, absolutely. Any other thoughts on that? Avi. Right. You know, I'm just going to confess it, and then, you know, I mean, I know so many people that have done that. Sure. And if you, like, it's interesting, I don't think that I've seen, I mean, obviously, like, shall we say that grace may abound? God forbid, yeah. All these different, like, New Testament references to that topic, but I haven't come across a good Old Testament, I mean, I haven't studied either, but, I mean, as far as, like, this is the first one that's kind of jumped out at me before, as far as keeping from his presumptuous sins, as far as the progression. Right. Right. So then, like, this is the warning, right? So now you are committing, you're presuming on God's grace, you're committing these sins, and now now you're giving into your idols. Right. Now you are in the grace. Right. Yes. You are worshiping your idols rather than God. Are you really saved? Right. Yeah. And that's where I would say, like, I think when we willfully sin, we're, we're making ourselves the idol or our comfort, or our convenience, or whatever we want in that moment. And so for me, yeah. Now, I will say, I know in my Christian walk, there's been times where I knew something was sinful, and I did it anyway. So, so in that regard, I'm so thankful again for his grace and stuff. But I think those that willfully, continually, habitually do that, First John 3 says they, they're not of God. So again, I, and I think that that's where David's saying, I don't ever want to get to and again, we have to be careful because Old Testament understanding of salvation versus new. But he's still understanding if I go down this road, this is where it's going to end and it's going to affect my walk with the Lord or with God. So absolutely. I, I think another one that I would say is kind of speaks to presumptuous sin or how we get to that point would be Psalm 1. That we either walk with the Lord or we walk in the, you know, the uh, counsel of the ungodly. We sit in the seat of the scorn, scornful. So it kind of, that kind of is telling us how we end up in presumptuous sin. It doesn't use that terminology, but I think we can look backwards and say that's a great example of how we can avoid being in a willful, sinful situation by guarding who we take counsel from, who we take wisdom from, and those kind of things as well. So any other thoughts or comments on Psalm 19? No, you're fine. <laughs> You're fine. Yes. Right. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah, the beginning of Job speaks about him having that desire that his children would walk with the Lord. And so he was doing sacrifices in advance, basically, um, proactively trying to say, in case they do, here, I want us to cover them. Absolutely. No, great point. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the psalm or anything we talked about over the last two Sunday nights? Yes, sir. Sure. Transgression. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think idolatry is the greatest example of separation from God. 
or wanting to put something else in God's place, which means I don't want to walk with him anymore. Um, and again, we have to be careful because obviously we can't, you know, New Testament believers, if we are truly converted in Christ, we can only go so far down that road. We can't lose our salvation. And so David's understanding of salvation is, is different. We have to acknowledge two different forms of um, the study of salvation and what that looks like for each person. But I think he was very much aware, if I continue down this road, this is where I'm going to head up and I'm going to be drifted from, from him. And again, David committed a willful sin, right, with Bathsheba, which led to a sense of separation from God's presence where he's weeping in his bed. He says, my, bone, my bones are soaked with sadness and weeping constantly. And he had to cry out and said, take not thy spirit from me, you know, renew a right spirit within me. So he understood that separation feeling, um, which I think, again, is a progression of even what Proverbs said. If you continue down this way, this road, this is the way of destruction. And if you continue to refuse godly counsel, you will end in destruction. That's really what Proverbs says as well. So, um, and unfortunately, some people don't get that until they're at the end of that road. And they're in that pit. And then they go, oh, this is where this took me. So again, the foresight of God's word to give us a knowledge to say, if you stay on this path, you won't end up on this one. But so many times, again, we neglect the very treasure of God's word. We haven't been pursuing it. We haven't been hungering for it. We're not desiring it. So we end up in our flesh drifting away. Errors or sins, secret faults become regular faults. And now all of a sudden we're into presumptuous sin and walking away. So absolutely, very true. Any other thoughts on Psalm 19 or anything else we've talked about last week or this week? All right. Again, I just want to encourage you guys, if the Lord leads you to do so, uh, maybe verse 14 um, puts in memory um, something that helps me as I, as I write them on three by five cards, usually the verse on one side and the reference on the other. And I just kind of leave them on my desk. And when I have a few minutes here or there, I just try to pick them up, read over them. Maybe you'd put it in your car somewhere, in your lunchbox if you're on break, whatever it might be. Um, stick it on a mirror at home. Uh, but I, I promise you, if you will put God's word to memory, the spirit will bring that to your memory when you need it. Um, you may not think you are going to remember it, but trust me, the Lord will work in that. So well, let's pray and we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you so much for your word that reveals to us, Lord, not only our sin and our brokenness, oh Lord, which is important, of course, <coughs> but Lord, also, it reveals to us the grace that you make available to us, that anyone, whosoever, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, we only know that because of your word. We only know the way of salvation because of your word. We only know that you came and died on a cross and rose again and the purpose for those things because of your word. Lord, there's historical record of you dying on a cross. There's tons of examples of early church fathers writing about different things that were testimonies of the early church. And we have those things, Lord, and those are good things to reaffirm some of the truths we read in Scripture. But Lord, without your word, there is no faith because you say in Romans ten seventeen that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we could not know you without the word. So thank you for it. It is a gift and a treasure. And I pray that we would pursue it, chase after it. Lord, that we would treasure our time in the word and that it would help us to grow and keep our eyes on you. Father, thank you for your forgiveness of sins, those sins that we don't even know that we've committed, the sins that we aren't even aware of, the things that maybe we knew our sin, knew were sins or our sins and Lord, did them anyway. Lord, what a... A reminder tonight, Lord, to be challenged and convicted to, to flee from those things, those youthful lusts or whatever it might be, to cleanse and to, or ask you rather to cleanse us by your spirit and by the working of your word, to fall into grace, Lord, and be restored and renewed. And Lord, thank you for all that you do, the great encouragements we read in your word and the great convictions as well. And so, Father, may you be glorified as we desire, just as creation reveals your glory and your majesty, just as the word reveals your glory, that we, our lives, would reflect your glory as well. So help us, Lord, in this, that we might be an example of you and your grace to the world around us. Father, again, we thank you for all of this. Go with us as we go our separate ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you guys. You are dismissed. We'll see you Wednesday night at 7 o'clock.